0: Well, hello there, Todd. Good morning.
1: Good morning. My voice is very, I can't sing today.
0: (laughs) Yes, I know. I'm so sorry.
1: For everyone listening, I came back from the ship and got COVID while on the ship. So it's still real, (laughs) y'all.
0: It's still out there. It's still out there. I think this is the second time we've said this on here from you going on a ship. It's humiliating.
1: Yeah, it's ain't nobody washing their hands, everybody coughing, nobody wearing a mask.
0: Well, there's a ton of people I know right now that have COVID as well in Charleston that were not on cruise ships. So you shouldn't feel guilty.
1: Thank you. And this strain isn't doesn't seem as intense as the first one I got. The only symptom I have is that I've lost my singing voice, which is not great when <laughs> you're a singer. It's very
0: inconvenient it's for a really singer, ob- yes.
1: It's really obnoxious. And then I have a little bit of a cough. But other than that, no fever, nothing else. But it gives me time to do the podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely,
0: it's helped me out selfishly, because you had to stay <laughs> in one place and actually upload files. So I know, guys, this That's is true. for you.
1: This COVID was <laughs> all for but all you had, of our listeners. You've but, had a much more exciting, you went to New York City, right?
0: Yes, I did. I went to New York City to see our friend Kay, who is also a guest on the show, and see a screening of her film that she directed, but it was with a bunch of other artists that did individual kind of monologues and it was about basically women power in a way each one was a different Love woman that. with a different message and Leia went with me and there were times where she would be poking me or i'd be poking her and be like i'm not crying you're crying
1: right but it's at the australian consulate
0: oh yes it was at the australian consulate which Excuse is inside me. of a giant building that looked like a bank of america and so we were the americans wandering about trying to be like where is this
1: where is this place
0: but we found it it was fun they had lots of nice snacks and you know we got to check out new york city it was hot which was like kind of obnoxious because yeah. I left Charleston where it was also hot and humid and went up there <laughs> and it was hot and humid, but it's always nice to be in the big city every you once in a while.
1: It is nice. You can know, say it's hot. It's actually cold here in L.A., Really, like it's cold. Yeah, it's like I have a sweater on. Like I'm cold here. Sure, it's not the COVID. Oh, shut up! Oh <laughs> God, it's, it is COVID. You're right. <laughs> no, it You're is. No, it's, it's actually it's that's actually cold outside. that no, people are wearing sweaters, but yeah, oh, it that's could be crazy. The
0: COVID. Well, actually, speaking of cold, our guest that we have on today was in Mount Shasta. And while we were interviewing her, we're hoping this turns out pretty seamlessly. But while we were interviewing her, there was a snowstorm and her power went out for a moment and we had some difficulties. So we think we're going to be able to stitch it together well. But because
1: we recorded this. I was on the ship. Yes. So so this
0: is the first ship recorded podcast. So we will see how this all goes.
1: (laughs) Um, Can you tell us a little bit about Robin?
0: Yes. So Robin Aisha Lansong was eight years old when she was abducted from the U.S. and taken to Rhodesia, Africa at the height of the Rhodesian War. After the abductor assaulted and abandoned her, she made her way to a rural village. Her experiences opened and inspired her to become a visual artist, writer, medium, and health intuitive. For the past 16 years, she has provided therapy and singing medicine healing sessions for over 16,000 people. She helps people come home to themselves to reignite their creativity and to directly experience their divine connection. She is an international speaker on healing trauma and reaching forgiveness and author of Loving Bravely. Please note, for full transparency, Robin sang medicine songs for both Todd and I that were beautiful and extremely moving. We referenced these songs in our after-interview discussion. However, the experience was so emotional that we both chose to keep our medicine songs and our immediate reactions private, so they are not included in this podcast. If you would like to hear some of Robin's medicine songs, they are available on her website, YouTube, and other platforms which are included in the show notes for this episode. Warning. While many of our episodes contain a hefty amount of trauma, this episode in particular contains intense stories of abuse, neglect, near death experiences, and war. If any of these topics are triggering for you or anyone else listening, please be advised. With that being said, and without further ado, we give you Robin Aisha Lansong. Okay, well, good afternoon, Robin. Hi, thank you for Hi, having Robin. me. Hi. Yes, we're so happy to have you. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome.
0: Thank you for inviting me. And I appreciate
2: all the work that you've done so far in helping people have easier conversations about healing trauma.
0: Oh, that's amazing. It's especially important coming from you, I think. So really appreciate that. And, you know, we've obviously read or we have given the listeners a little bit of background about you, but we would like to kind of dive right in because you have such a amazing, inspiring, also kind of harrowing at times story. So normally we start these things by asking people basically about their background and what their childhood was like and just kind of giving a little bit of background. But your story obviously starts pretty early. So could you give us a little background about, you know, your childhood in general before you know, basically being abducted and what it was like kind of living in the household that you did and what your parents were like.
2: Mm -hmm. I always like to place what happens in people's family in the generational context. And like I've talked about before, that it's a basic mammal instinct to want to protect your young. And so when that isn't happening, because I was growing up with neglect and abuse and really a culture of secrecy, of if we don't talk about it, then it didn't happen. And so I like to get curious, where did that start generationally? In my work as a craniosacral therapist and professional intuitive, I've really, I've worked with, done about 16,000 sessions. And in that time over 20 years, I've come to the conclusion that so much of it starts with war and tracing back, you know, did, did grandpa come back different? you know, when he was a young man, did he come back different from war? Did the alcoholism in the family start then? And what is the cultural context within which families are trying to raise the next generation? So it really shifts, one, taking it personally in terms of what your parents or parents didn't do in terms of care, neglect, attachment, and looking at What can we do going forward for this generation, the next generation, in terms of creating safety, to speak about these things, to have these conversations? Because really in my research about what's the key to healing, and it's being seen, it's being witnessed. You and I talked earlier about Daniel Siegel's work, that having somebody say, I see you, noticing your facial expression, noticing your tone of voice, and saying, hey, you look sad, or what's going on? And having somebody be able to stay present with your answer, rather than minimizing or deflecting, or you shouldn't feel that way, or other people have it worse. So I grew up with a lot of other people have it worse, you don't have any real problems, and... My favorite now that you know, with all my healing work that I've done, is you're just making this up for attention. And of wow, course, of course, human beings need attention, children need attention. So, yes, you're right, we do yeah. express ourselves to get attention. So, that one doesn't really hold much water, <laughs> and-
1: definitely. Can you sort of tell everyone? about sort of the circumstances surrounding your abduction and the events that followed in, is it Rhodesia? Correct. Which is now Zimbabwe? Correct. Yeah.
2: So it was 1977. So post-Vietnam War, Child Protective Services wasn't even developed at this point. So a lot of people ask, like, how could you have been abducted and not have it be, you know, all over the newspaper? And I say, quite easily. So again, you know, child abuse was just beginning to be a conversation. The first physician that named child abuse as a physical ailment, meaning like, oh, this child has a broken arm. It didn't just happen from the playground. And he got so much professional backlash just to even name child abuse as a source of harm for children. So Paperwork was just being developed in California for Child Protective Services. There was no national system to report a missing child until around 1983, when a family who lost their child did a huge campaign and made it a national issue and said, there's no national system for this. And so you could report a stolen car, you could report a stolen horse, but there was no national system for reporting a stolen child.
1: Unbelievable.
0: Mm-hmm. And that was that around the time of like when the, the milk cartons were happening? That's a little later. That's like 84. Okay. Oh, well, that's even later. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm, yeah. We're <laughs> behind.
2: And it was a personal organization that started it, not a government organization that started it. And you know, it was a family who lost their son, and there was no you know, they had so much trouble they could report it to local police, but they couldn't systematically look for him countrywide because it wasn't even in place yet.
1: So, what were the circumstances when you were taken?
2: Mm-hmm. So, I walked home from school. You know, I was growing up in a family that again, there was neglect, there was violence, there was we don't talk about it, and this is a time period where children aren't particularly valued, girl children are less valued, and I was being subjected to a lot of adults who are mentally ill, pedophiles. So one of those spotted me and said, Ooh, easy target. And just noticed that I walked home from school by myself, waited till the end of the school day, and just came and got me and picked me up. And it's a strange thing to say. It was fortunate for me that I was already an abuse survivor because I already knew how to be silent, how to be compliant, how to. Read adults. So I would think I was born intuitive, but also these experiences broke that skill open to a hyper vigilant level. Like so many people can relate to having to hyper vigilantly scan, like, oh, how drunk is dad? Or how is this going to go? How can I position myself to survive this circumstance? So I already had that skill highly developed in me. And what was so scary about the man that abducted me is that he was so closed, so lost, that I, even as a highly intuitive child, could barely read him, which frightened me even more because it was my strategy to figure out, I'm going to read their psychology and be the something that is going to be able to match what they need so I can make it through this alive.
0: Yeah. So it was like, there's something in there that's just so profound because we've now kind of heard it before when we interviewed Ashley, who's a medium, and she mentioned that people that have been through trauma are usually the ones that end up being the most intuitive and that can kind of bring messages through. But a lot of that is because of survival. So you were in full-blown survival mode, obviously. So after he took you, what happened after that? I know that basically you were in Left up the country through Philadelphia, correct? Correct.
2: Yeah. So he took me away from school. I was bound up. So there was just the chance of escaping was nothing. And so he took me to the woods, and I thought, he's going to kill me. This is the end. And he drugged me. So I don't know whether it was the forget everything drug or whether I was actually unfunctional, unconscious. But at that time, again, 1977, plane seats were bigger. So he could have just taken me on as luggage right in front of him or if it was the forget drug you know I might have looked like I was still acting normally but I don't know anything until I became conscious again and when I did again my quick job was to read him as fast as I could and at that time I was then I was able to read him and just the damage inside him and I didn't understand what maybe soldiers had been through but I was on a military base in Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, and it looked like something had just kind of blown up his goodness, that there was no center of humanity left. And his psychology is that like, we were a team together, and his, in his mind, I was his daughter, and that he was getting back his daughter. And so, again, so many people who are really off-center have this entitlement idea that they're just gonna get what they want. So I knew my life was in danger at every moment, and I was just going to need to be whatever he wanted. And so
0: from there, you basically wake up in Africa, and he then kind of passes you off to somebody else.
2: Yeah. So first, he the one moment that I did fight back, he assaulted me, and I thought that was going to be the end of my life. He was kicking me in my ribs, and there was no way I was going to survive. So somebody actually came out, um, pulled me into their room, and I was taken by the MPs and put in a hospital. No one stopped him when he came to get me a couple days later. And so then that's when he handed me over to another man. What I know now is their training for recruits that already had military experience was they had about a five-day training. So then he was going to go into the field, so he had to pass me off to somebody else. So he was a white American, and he handed me off to a black African. And I don't know whether the nature of that, but I don't know whether he said just go lose her in the bushes or what the arrangement there was. But that man, we got on a bus. The bus broke down. Um, everybody had to get out and start walking. I, my ribs are broken. My painkillers are worn off. So there's no way I can keep up with the group. And the man who was care I was in. He pushed on my back and pushed on my broken ribs, so I bit him like any wounded animal would do. And he kind of pulled away and was like, oh, I want nothing to do with you. So he left me behind. And so I thought, this is how I'm going to die. It's just the sun's going to drive me up. I'm going to starve to death out here in the bush. And again, I had no idea that it's the height of the Rhodesian War, which is a civil war, and that my chances of survival as a white child out there by myself, really nothing.
1: Zero. Yeah.
2: And so I was actually picked up by soldiers and I didn't know at the time it was the most extreme soldiers and they were all fully armed. And I thought, okay, this is going to be the end of my eight miserable years. They took me to what I now know is one of the most dangerous locations, the Thule Block. And when they got me off the truck, they literally had an argument over me about whether to shoot me Or one of the men wanted to save me.
1: What was going through your mind when that was going on?
2: You know, that's a great nervous system question. It was, I want to die to have this be over. And of course, a part of me wanted to live. But there's nothing to really live for. I have no people. I have no home. I'm not cared for by anyone. So my nervous system went into what's called parasympathetic shock, which is mercy to not feel being killed. Every animal is capable of it, you know, and we see, you know, National Geographic of the cheetah chasing the antelope and the antelope falls down in paralysis. That's parasympathetic shock. And so it's to not feel being killed. So my body did that. I just went unconscious and paralyzed. My heart rate went down to not feel what was going to happen next. Um, So obviously the man who wanted to save me won the argument and he took me out of there, took the risk to go against the other soldiers. And keep in mind the complexity of this war. There's three sides, and people are changing sides because even soldiers are trying to survive. Because it's a dictatorship, it's so dangerous for everyone that sometimes brothers would be on different sides. So very complex And so he takes me out of there and he drops me off to a village he thought would be sympathetic to a white child that was right at the border between Rhodesia and South Africa with the idea of, you know, maybe they could get me out of there. So I spend the night in a tree by myself and it might sound like I would be incredibly lonely and of course I'm hungry I'm thirsty, but I'm finally free of the abductor and I'm free of danger. So to me it's the most magical night, looking up in the stars. Thank goodness I didn't understand how many wild animals there were. They could just yeah. climb the tree and get me. You know, it's just divine grace that I, you know, didn't get eaten that night. And so in the morning I hear singing. And it's the women singing while they work. They're grinding the corn, the which is called mealy meal. And I wanna find out what are they made of? that they have this life inside them, that they can sing so beautifully. And unfortunately, my mother was not really capable of mothering or kindness or sweetness. And so to feel these women who have this aliveness inside them, I wanted to find out and be closer. And their singing is different than my singing, but I'm just going to give you a taste of the aliveness of what they had in their singing. Shay, um. Shay. Hey, no way. Eiye. Oh, I am. Oh, I ayam, no way. So I creep closer and At a certain moment, they see me, and they're so surprised to see a white child. And I run away, but they bring back water, and I creep closer, and I'm not sure if it's really meant for me, but I drink all of it, and it makes it so my mouth isn't stuck together and my tongue isn't stuck to my teeth. And then they bring me some of the cornmeal, the mealy meal, and I eat that with my fingers, and I watch them. And they just keep doing their work, and they let me be present with them. And others come over, and they're so surprised again. This is an incredibly segregated area. So they probably think that my white family was killed and that I managed to escape, and that's why I'm by myself. So that night, they... They offer to allow me to come into a hut, but I'm so distrusting, so scared of people that I don't want to go in. So they set out a goat skin and I I sleep on that. In the morning, I wake up and there's a blanket on me. And so it's the children who come over and welcome me in, and they're touching my white skin and my hair that was lighter color. And they take me to the fire circle where ceremony happens. And one of the eldest girls starts telling a story, and she's telling a story about me. And it's in Venda, so I can't understand her, but I understand the idea that she's focusing on me. And she gets some ash from the fire, and she's putting it on my white skin. And it's, she's doing these big, grand gestures, so I get, she's saying, she came from afar, and she came to us, and the other children join in, and they're putting this ash on my face, my blonde hair, and the, my clothes, and they're welcoming me in, and it's my first experience of true belonging in my life. Because, of course, being an abused child, I was very quiet. I didn't really fit in with other kids because I was so shut down. So they're opening me up with their laughter. And one of the women who first welcomed me in and gave me food comes over and she starts singing. And again, you know, my singing is different than hers, but it's this calling song. And she's gesturing that she wants me to come over to her. And so I'm getting close to her and she wants me to look into her eyes. And so far in my eight years, I don't look adults in the eyes because I'm afraid of their insanity getting inside me or for good adults I'm afraid of them seeing all the shame that's inside me and all the compressed trauma that's in me. So she's calling me to look into her eyes and her song is melting me. I'm like a iceberg instead of a child. So she keeps singing these phrases that feel so safe and eventually I look into her eyes And for the first time in my eight years, I see the eyes of a mother. I see someone loving, who cares about my well-being. And I literally move closer. She wraps her arms around me. And because of her singing, I collapse into her arms. And I'm letting her be my shelter, letting her be my mama. And that night, I sleep inside a hut, and I'm holding on to her dress, so I know right where she is and I have a feeling that this is heaven and for the first time, I'm no longer lost and I've been found.
0: I mean, that is just um, incredible. I don't even, you know, every part of it, we're, chills. we're all got, we've got chills everywhere, but it's just in its own way. It's so sad, but so beautiful that you were able to find that belonging in one way. And I know, unfortunately, not too long after that, the town that you were in was attacked or you ended up being shot Yes, by somebody. Was that before or after the attack? And how did that kind of end up? And I know that ended up kind of being a, a near-death experience, and we'd love to hear more about that. Mm-hmm. But just the background of it would be amazing.
2: Yeah. So the piece I want to address before I go into what happened next is – there's a culture in many African communities where you care for a child even if it's not your own and so sometimes people will kind of send their child to their relative just to have a different experience and so there's this even if it's not your own biological child you care for them and so to have her care for me across race when you know there's so much about this war was race but because I needed mothering, she gave it. And so I have that element of the culture to thank for being alive. So yes, what happened next, I was there for, as best as I can put together, about four weeks with them. And because the when I came in, it was a quarter moon, and when the attack on the village happened, it was also a quarter moon. So that's how I can tell it was about four weeks. So they healed my bruises with clay from the river and they sang to me, and they gave me a naming ceremony. And so they gave me the name Shai, and the greeting for a girl is Ai. So I thought my name was Aisha, which is a more Northern Africa name, so it didn't quite make sense, but that's what I heard and I understood. And I've decided to keep that name as my middle name because it means she who lives, and also she who loves to lead others spiritually. So it feels very fitting. And so what happened is I went back to that river one day by myself where the women had put clay on my bruise. So this river going to this creek was a very positive place for me. And so I was there by myself. I felt safe there. And I looked up and saw a soldier that now I understand he was scouting the area because a battle was about to start to happen. And so he spotted me and immediately drew up his gun. And I couldn't understand how the people of... My village and my homestead, they valued my life, but he didn't. And so it was so quick and he was so close that I could literally see his finger on the trigger. And what somebody's explained to me now is that scopes are designed for farther length. So he was aiming here, but the scope's off when you're that close. So the bullet grazed the top of my head when he pulled the trigger and it blew me off my feet and I fell to the ground, and began to start bleeding out from blood loss. And I was up above my body looking down, thinking if my life force, I could see my life force going in and out of my body. And I thought if that doesn't go back in and stay, that's the end of me. And so it came out again, and then my perspective and my life force rushed back into my body, into my heart, out the back of my heart. And I began to have this incredible journey. And what's true is that I no longer had to fight to survive. And I no longer had to hold myself up because I was being held. And I was going home to my greater source, the place of origination that created me. And that all my traumas were I was being relieved of everything that had happened in my eight really difficult years. So beings were purifying me, I was being welcomed home, and I was being given the option of this kind of easier path. But what happened is that I was still really attached to my new African family. So my journey wasn't just this direct going home to source, I was searching for them. And at one point I kind of landed, my perception was being kind of landed in this big open grass field and I was searching for them. And I had a premonition that they were gonna be harmed and that they were down and bleeding and wouldn't be able to call back to me. So I went around desperately searching for them so I could help them just as they had helped me. My African mother had found my body, lifted it up into her lap, and she had her hand on the top of my head stopping the blood flow. And she was wailing into the sky. And I wanted to let her know, I'm fine. I'm totally held. I'm not in pain. And so I began to rise up. And this image I have behind me is a turtle that is to honor her. And just like there's the creation story that the world rests on the back of a turtle, my world rested on her back. But I began rising up and wanting someone to comfort her. And again, beings are passing through me, taking away the disturbances, any belief that I wasn't good enough or that the abuse was my fault. And as it continued crossing over, being purified, her song was so powerful because she called on the ancestors on the land to call me back to life. And that penetrated through the veils that were closing behind me. And when that song, that calling song from the ancestors reached me, I paused and I could continue going home to my source or their song reminded me I had not yet done my purpose, which was to sing to people to help them remember their belonging just as she was doing for me. So that passion to come back and be part of the choir of medicine singers turned me around in the tunnel. And of course, I kind of was like, oh, I'm leaving this peace. I'm leaving this love. But I came back to do my passion. So as I'm coming back, right at the veil, final veil between the living and being in there in the tunnel, there was a woman. And I perceived her as the grandmother of all of us. And her skin was black and her eyes were all colors. And she was singing a song inside me as if I was a cathedral. And she was singing this song of praise. And what she was saying to me is, when you go back, it's going to be so difficult. There's going to be so much more loss. But just remember you belong here. And that no matter what happens to you, it can never reduce your value or your belonging in all of creation. So with that, I inhaled, came back to my body, and my mama held me. People showed up from the village, which was only like the village community was only about nine or ten people. And so they took me back to the huts. They sung prayer songs over to me to get the hatred They came with the bullet off my head, so I wouldn't go through life confused. They were putting medicine plants on me. And so they cared for me, and I knew I was going to be okay, because I was held and loved. And what happened is about two days later, as best as we can put together, the soldiers came back, and... Even though they were black Africans and the soldiers were black Africans, if you weren't on their side, then they considered you the enemy. And so I was in a hut when they opened fire, and I could hear the people I love going down. And when the shooting stopped, another mother, that the one of the ones who had put the clay on me and sung to me she picked me up on her hip and she began to run out of the hut to escape and she didn't make it very far before she was shot from behind and so we both went down and I hit the ground which started my bleeding again and I wanted to pull her with me but I was eight and she was an adult and she was yelling at me to run to go and to leave her So I followed her instruction because she had never yelled at me before. And I ran and I made it just a little bit further before I fell down face forward and had a second death experience. And this one's entirely different. It was a white landscape and there was a being singing to me, you will live, you will live. And I thought, did I die again? And I looked around, I didn't have a sense of body was an entirely white landscape. And I asked, who's singing to me? And this being moved me closer. And he I could see through this veil. He had kind of blue-purple skin. And he was a presence that was so intense, so powerful. He had black hair with a bun on his head. And there were all these jewels and gifts around him. And I thought, how am I so lucky? to be in his presence, because I could tell with one hand he could create the world, and with another he could destroy. And he said to me, and got across to me, what looks like total destruction now will become the creation of something new, and you are part of that creation. So I'm going to return you back to life, so you can become part of that new creation. So he returned me back to my body and gave me the strength to crawl forward. It wasn't my will, I wanted to die. I wanted to die with everybody else. But he commanded me to crawl forward inch by inch. And he commanded me, he knew where I was going. So he was commanding me to crawl towards a well but he knew somebody would come in the morning to get water. So I spent the night by myself, And that night I dreamt of everyone I loved crossing over, and I wanted to go with them. But I was rooted here, it was my karma to live. And in the morning, a woman I now know, her name was Mia Lucy, she came to get water and found me half dead. She washed the blood off my face, put me on her back like I was her own baby, and took me back to her homestead. When other people saw she had a wounded white child, they said, don't bother with her. It's too dangerous. And they were right. If she was found by the white government having a white child, they could accuse her of abducting me, which was a very serious crime. And if she was found by the extremists, you know, they would just wipe out the whole village. So she hid me. And her granddaughter, Mayamo, took care of me and played with me. And I was blind in one eye. I crawled around because I couldn't see from the brain injury. And But they hid me and took care of me. And the medicine singers would come to, again, relieve the confusion, relieve the pain. And eventually they asked the nearest white farming family in South Africa, we found this white child, we don't know who she belongs to, and they said, give her to us, we'll find out who her family is. So they took me across the river, the Limpopo River into South Africa. The white family let them through at the gate because literally there was a fence between Rhodesia and South Africa to not let the war come in. So they let me through that fence. Since then, I've been back to that exact spot. And that family took me in. And they cared for me and they fed me, but it wasn't the same. Because... When I was in Rhodesia, I was being touched and sung to and slept next to, and I was part of. And when I got over to the other side in South Africa, it was like I said, they took care of me, but no one was touching me, no one was singing to me. And I literally began to die of loneliness. And I went behind the refrigerator because it was kind of the only warm humming spot I could find, and I began to die. And I lifted up again. And I was looking down on their farm from above, and they found me and resuscitated me, put me in a hospital in Pollikwane, white's-only hospital. And apartheid is a killing energy to both sides. You know so the women had white nurses just they didn't have vitality or life in their hands. And they lied to me and told me that my dress, of course, I was wearing an African dress, which, you know, during apartheid, that was appalling to the white people. So they took my dress away, wouldn't give it back to me. And I had really no reason to live. And there was no joy, there was no vitality. But they made me tell them who my family was in America, because they, you know, threatened an orphanage in South Africa was no place I wanted to be. So when I was well enough, they had an agent from South Africa, escort me on a plane back to Philadelphia. My biological father was there to greet me. And when I got taken back to my family, and I tried to speak of any of this, and I I might have said something to my mother, like, I have to get back to my real mother. She hit me across the face and said, don't ever speak of this again. So I remembered how to suppress things, how to put things away. And so many people can relate to this either family culture or social culture of if we don't talk about it, then it never happened. And so much of what I've learned in my healing and compassion training is when we can turn towards the suffering, turn towards the pain, the emotions, and be present with it, Then we can arrive to compassion. Then we can arrive to healing and transformation. So that's what's become so much of my mission is helping people turn towards the difficulty and using my singing medicine to give that mothering, that nurturing that so many people need to have the confidence, the strength to do their trauma healing work because it's really the only way we can arrive to caring for ourselves and caring for each other.
1: Robin, to follow up on that, in the beginning of this, you spoke about your abductor, and sort of when you were describing him, it seemed like you were describing sort of what you now know of the psychology of him, what he was thinking, what he was going through. There was he was sort of uh, there was no love or anything within him anymore. Now, since going on the journey you've gone on, are you now in a place where you can sort of have any kind of empathy for that man, for the abductor?
2: Yes. And that took a long time. And what I want to say about that first is don't rush that process.
1: Yeah. I was going to say a lot of people that are listening to this would probably be like, how could she have empathy for someone who took her and all these horrific and beautiful, but horrific things happen to you?
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. So I say don't rush forgiveness. It's a really byproduct of healing your trauma. So my hope for people is really focus on healing your nervous system You know, through so many ways, embodiment practices, feeding yourself well, dance, movement, community, good touch, supportive people, and let forgiveness be a byproduct of your nervous system healing. And I really cringe when I see religious things that want people to forgive somebody right away. And that's bypassing the anger. Anger is an essential stage to stand up inside yourself and say, I matter. So especially for feminine people, there can be this over-concern about making sure other people are comfortable. So I say the anger stage is perfectly spiritual perfectly healthy, and it gives you agency to not tolerate more abuse. And that forgiveness
1: – Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> you like that one? I like that one.
0: I'm having a full moment over here. I just can't.
1: <laughs> right. I, you're like weeping over there. <laughs> I just um. feel like it's just
0: like you're putting into words I feel like is so – real from the, some of the trauma that I've gone through. It's, I remember my therapist at the time being like, I can't wait for you to get angry because then it starts. Then the healing actually starts. And that's when you, you kind of individuate yourself Mm -hmm. and who you are. And then that in turn, as time goes on, you start seeing these other people that did horrible things that you were just previously angry about, but now you see that it in a totally different light mm-hmm. of that that they're also human beings that were hurting at that time and in their own ways. So yeah. It I doesn't
1: guess. excuse it, right? It doesn't excuse the behavior, but it sort of gives you the agency to let it go for yourself because their healing journey is their own journey. And the wounds they inflicted on you, they couldn't see maybe that they were hurting someone.
2: And that's the piece. He was at the psychopath level. So there was a certain point when he was about to kill me that my consciousness went above and went in to see his
1: consciousness. At eight, at eight years old, you were doing That's incredible. Yeah.
2: And I was as important or as real to him as a stuffed doll. He couldn't see my my humanity. And so that's how people can do harm is that they have lost being able to see another person's humanity. And we've just covered so many important points. I want to go back to when I was angry, and this was kind of early in my healing process in my 20s, it was years, and it's not comfortable to be that angry. It was just, I just felt burned up all the time. But it was in direct proportion to how much I'd been harmed. It was in direct proportion and need to how much I needed to individuate and stand up. So... I remember somebody kind of meeting me like once that era, anger era started to calm down and they're like, woo, it was intense to talk to you. And it's like, yes, it was. And, you know, like feminism gave me a platform to say, I matter. I have a voice. I have a place and I am equal to other human beings. Early in my healing process, I kind of slipped and said something to somebody about, well, if I were a human being. And they just called me on it. They're like, what did you just say? And like my sense of self was so low, so damaged, so covered over that I couldn't even really count myself. So that's why the getting angry, standing up, being, and it's not pretty. It's righteous. It's it's, you overstep the line. Your boundaries are too rigid. It's not pretty. But do that so that you can get to negotiable boundaries, so that you can get to grace. So that your dignity doesn't have to be righteous anymore you can just be present and now i'm 53 i did my really my gritty hard work was 15 years and so at about like 35 37 i could start to turn my attention to others healing and get training in the nervous system in the body i became a cranial psychotherapist and You know, I've done polyvagal theory of the nervous system, which is so great because it reduces the shame out of having trauma response. So if people get too shut down or get rageful, polyvagal theory and really understanding the neurobiology of trauma response just puts you in this larger mammal perspective of this is what mammals do when they are overwhelmed and threatened. And that's the place, like you were saying, is you can start to get agency and choice when you can de-escalate the volume of trauma in your nervous system. Again, movement, breath practice, qigong, good nutrition, plant-based diet, you know, loving relationships, good touch, all those things. And notice, psychotherapy is incredibly valuable, but it's not for everyone. So I like to really emphasize the breadth and spectrum of how people can heal, community singing, your own singing, choir, you know, all these community things, anything that opens and softens your heart is trauma resolution. And any safe relationship you have is trauma resolution. So the key for me in being able to transform from being terrified to even think about the abductor was EMDR therapy. And that stands for like the rapid eye movement. So I had a great therapist that I trusted and we did a session on my terror of just even being able to think about him, the nightmares. And what happened in that EMDR session was I saw him age, go back and be younger and younger and younger until I saw him as a crying, distressed infant who had no mothering. And in that moment, My terror of him softened into concern, into interest, into curiosity, because the opposite of being rigid and discarding someone's humanity is being curious. And my own survival state, that blocked out curiosity. So what my mission is now is when we other somebody, when we're in trauma state or in fear state... We put somebody in a quick category because that's what our limbic brain does—is categorize quickly. Am I safe? Am I getting welcome or warning? What happens in our deescalating our own trauma is that we have the option to get to our frontal thinking, where we can see this person in the larger context. They're not just looking like somebody who harmed us in the past. Their voice isn't just triggering our memories of our. Dad, or somebody else who might have been perpetrated. We can actually see them in the present, see them in the context of their human experience, and get curious. And that doesn't mean we don't have discernment about, like, oh, nope, this person isn't safe. I'm not going to get closer.
1: I was just about to, yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yep.
2: <laughs> we can love somebody from afar and be like, you know what? They haven't done their trauma work and they're dangerous. And we can love them from the other state, just because compassion includes discernment, and it means you can still have somebody out of your life. And I love Pema Chodron is a really great teacher on tonglen practice, a Buddhist practice. And somebody got up to the mic and said, "Well, if you're leaving somebody who's abusive, should you try to have tonglen practice for them? Meaning this kind of very advanced compassion practice?" And you know, here she is these amazing buddhist american buddhist nun and she says no forget tonglen and get out and so it's about get yourself safe do your own nervous system healing in the variety of ways that you can and if whatever number of years down the road you want to get curious about their humanity and then have compassion for them great if you're angry at them for the rest of your life you know that's fine too if that keeps you away from abuse It's hard on our own nervous systems to rule somebody else out. So eventually, and so many people I've talked to talk about, in the beginning, our healing process is a psychological process. It's that knowing we're worthwhile, knowing what our boundaries are, and eventually it becomes a spiritual practice. And that turning, and when we have the energy to be of service to others, to help them rise out of the ashes, Then we up-level our own trauma transformation by giving back to others, just as you all are doing through this podcast.
1: How do you navigate grief through all that? Does grief come into that process? I mean, I would assume you're grieving the loss of your innocence. I mean, you specifically with what you went through, there had to have been some sort of like, I have to mourn the loss of a child who never got a normal childhood.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. You know what's really funny? Some of the feedback that people give me is that I do still have my innocence.
0: I definitely, I don't know. I feel that with you. I mean, it's like, because there's somebody that literally took the pain and hardness of not having a childhood like your abductor, and that was transformed into... What was ultimately you being abducted and him losing his humanity and his way and his his ability to think that other people mattered, whereas you went through all of this and ultimately felt it's amazing that you didn't just jump off a bridge at some point. I mean, like at that point, it's just like, oh my gosh, like I get it. Oh, God's only supposed to give us as much as we can handle, but like at that point, it's like, okay, what does that even mean? (laughs) Like, this is not fair.
1: Maybe she reclaimed her innocence Mm -hmm. at some point through all this work, Mm -hmm. you know? Maybe you took it back.
2: Yes. Yes. And that's that curiosity. And like I say,
1: the antidote to rigidness
2: is curiosity. The antidote to bitterness is what's possible in human relationships. And quite honestly, my death experiences gave me a trip back home to source. So. All that had been broken, all that had been crushed, all that had been disillusioned, I got to go home back to source and kind of get a refreshment of that original something that we're born with. And so I'm very grateful for that. And I don't recommend death experiences. I recommend <laughs> meditation. I, yeah. One of my stepkids at the time, he I would talk about my death experience and he'd say, I want to try one. I'd say, no, 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 I know. no, no, no.
0: <laughs> I want to reboot. I want to start over. Yeah, that would be awesome. <laughs> you don't get um, to guarantee you come back. So, yeah, exactly. What kind of like the p- possibilities are, it could go anyway. So maybe right. let's not. And you know, I have try. met
2: people that through meditation, they have what's called the benefits of the death experience. So there's. People who have done research, they have a list of 10 benefits that's really common across the board. Like, this person interviewed about 700 near death experiencers, which, of course, there's thousands and thousands of us. And she came up with this list of 11 common traits and almost an innocence, a curiosity of like what's possible, what's good in the world was one of them. You know, being more sensitive to pharmaceuticals, more sensitive to light, intuition being opened more altruism, lack of fear of death, understanding the big picture of the ways we're connected. And it doesn't happen for every near-deather, but these are usually common things. And so sometimes when I meet people and they display all these traits, I say, hey, did you have a time when you were so far out? And they say, oh, no, not me. And then I say, fever, childhood experience, infancy. And they're like, oh, you mean the time I checked out and saw the beings? I was like, yeah, that. (laughs)
0: Yes, the, the delusional part, but it was actually not delusional. It was happening and you just chalked it up to fevers right. or drugs. Yeah, I mean everything that you just recounted. I mean, I think that Todd and I both had multiple out-of-body experiences just through that situation. Uh-huh moments. I know. Galore. And we've talked about kind of your call to help others and you mentioned, you know, that helping is a part of the healing journey. So in that same conversation we talked a lot about kind of generational trauma and abuse and and you speak about it a lot on your YouTube channel and so i kind of want to hear how much and how does that relate to your story as a whole like how much do you attribute that generational trauma and also kind of how that connects to what we talked about of attachment trauma Mm -hmm. and how people ultimately kind of come to be who they are and how that works.
2: Yeah. And so you've asked really great questions. And so there's the generational piece. And again, kind of my conclusion after doing about 16,000 sessions is so much of it comes back to war, military training, like what does that do to people? And how do they come back different? You know, and so of course, you know, having been abducted by a military man who had lost his humanity and lost his ability to see my humanity, I've become curious, you know, how can I contribute to the healing of veterans? And just that bringing full circle, I finally had the opportunity recently to work with a group of vets, and uh, next month I'm going to go sing to some veterans. And how powerful that is to me to sing to them. Knowing as a child, I didn't have power or agency to help or be of service to that veteran. And he might have been beyond what somebody could open up again. I don't know. But when people are receptive to healing, when people are wanting to get out of their pain and come home to themselves, you know, that's when I love to sing to them, to whatever of what I do, whether it's my art, whether it's teaching whether it's the craniosacral or my intuitive work because through the intuitive work we get to that attachment piece because what I'm how I'm using my intuition is to say I see you you matter you're real and the longer I've done this work the more refined nuanced and broad my intuition is so at this point when I'm working with somebody if they say I've been working on this so many ways but I can't resolve this fear this you know obsession this you know thing that's really off center in my life then i i immediately that's my sign of like oh maybe this is generational maybe it's not yours and i read some research about they did this in a lab and often when they're working on mice it's not very thoughtful or kind but they would send a little shock through the floor to these mice at the same time they exposed them to an orange blossom scent so, after a while, they just made the orange blossom scent, and the mice would start to shake with tension, waiting for the little shock. And so then they did nothing, just raised them seven generations of those mice later. They exposed them to orange blossom, and that generation started to shake. Wow.
1: I'm gagged. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh my. Okay.
2: So,
0: <laughs> what was their explanation for that?
2: that we remember danger we pass on, you know, through the epigenetics to the next generation. Watch out for this danger so you'll survive. And here's the other piece that I learned in my craniocycle training is that girl babies are born with all their eggs. You know, while our mothers were in our grandmother, the egg of us already exists inside her. So, as an egg that will become us, we existed physically in our grandmother. So, whatever her trauma was, whatever her nervous system labeled as dangerous, whether that was famine, whether it was war, whether it was dictatorship, whether it was family violence, our epigenetics, our DNA is getting the signal watch out for this. So, when people are financially okay but still have poverty mentality, did that start in famine, you know, two generations ago, three generations ago? So that's why it's so important to get conscious of our body sensation, conscious of our thought process, so we can get curious where's that come from? Is that even in my lifetime? And the more conscious we can be of how we speak to ourselves, the more agents we have to shift it.
0: That's just. It's so profound. I knew that about, you know, girls and and having their eggs, but I guess I never really thought of it as okay. When I was, I was still an egg inside of my mom when she was inside of my grandmother, and we now know that a lot of things that you do during pregnancy can have genetic effects, both from the baby to the mom, and the other way. So, what would stop that from happening? a neurobiological kind of sensory way is it's just I don't know mind-blowing to actually put it in that context of it's I think we talked about this in our kind of our pre-interview of you know the body keeps the score my favorite book in the world but also that it's we're all kind of we always are looking for like a quick fix of I'm stressed, I'm anxious, I'm whatever. But it, it's a lot of it is coming from a place that you need to eventually fix the source and not just the ailments. And I don't know, it feels like it almost is like complicates it so much, like how are you going to fix something that you didn't even experience? But
2: that's And there's a lot of people doing great work around the generational healing, You know, myself included, because it's so fundamental. And It's almost exciting to think about if our ancestors didn't have the time or the resources. You know, they were farming, they were surviving, they were trying to get food. And we now have more space and time and safety to do this work. That these issues have been waiting for somebody to be conscious, to be mindful, to give attending to what needs to be healed, and how exciting that is for ourselves and for the next generation to be able to go ahead and mindfully, lovingly get conscious, to turn towards the difficulty. And so the great definition of empathy that I learned in my Stanford training is empathy is noticing the suffering. It's that simple. Noticing the suffering, staying with it, And like you say, not turning away from it, not avoiding it, not eating a whole bag of popcorn to be like, ooh. And then what can happen is breath by breath, inhale, exhale, noticing, staying with. The research in mindfulness shows if we can go ahead and stay with a feeling for three minutes, it will often transform. And again, these are not like crushing massive emotions like you were talking about before, the grief I've had for years was so intense. And that's not three to five minutes. But say we have an annoyance or a stressor or we get triggered. Stay with it. Notice it. Breathing in, breathing out. Where's the sensation? Emotion is a sensation in our body that our brain interprets as a state. So if our stomach tightens up, our brain says, I'm scared. If our heart starts pounding, it says, oh, I'm angry. So when we can abide with sensation, that's our ticket out of jail. That's our ticket out of numbness. That's our well, The
1: only way to get through pain is to go straight the hell into it and just confront it. I think we as humans, if we go through some sort of trauma or pain and we get triggered, like you said, I think what we do automatically is like retreat. We want to get away from it. And you're saying, no, stay with it. Unlock it. But I'm
2: going to nuance what you said. As a craniosacral therapist, Okay the approach is to stay on the edge of it stay on the border okay because it, what do you mean by that safe if,
0: distance maybe
2: so you know i'm making a circle in front of me say this is the nugget of pain stay on the border stay on the edge stay on the place where you feel like i'm okay out here versus if you go right into the very center of it it's likely to get overwhelmed, and then you're going to avoid it next time. So as a craniosychotherapist, if I came upon noticing something in somebody's nervous system, somebody's organ, somebody's body and being, first of all, it's not my job to fix something. It's my job to be a compassionate witness. So telepathically, I would say to somebody, what would you like to do with this? Sometimes telepathically, people will say, I don't want to do anything with it. I just want to avoid it. And I'd say, okay. And that's people's level of readiness and to respect people's ambivalence about whether or not they're ready to go forward in their trauma healing.
1: But what if people never get to that point, Robin? What if people are, they go through their entire life being so scared of actually confronting what's holding them back or what's keeping them from being their highest self?
2: So trauma is usually being forced to do what is against your ethics, values, your personal boundaries. Healing is about giving people permission and space and respecting that they have ambivalence. So I'm going to give you an example. I worked with a boy who had had a lot of medical intervention. People had poked and prodded and pushed him. And when he got on my table and I made first contact with him, I got a big, giant, energetic no. He had had medical people forcing him to do things he didn't want, like putting tape over his mouth, forcing him to breathe through his nose. And so my job as a craniosacral was to respect his no. For 50 minutes, he just said no, and I did no treatment. The last five minutes, because I respected his no, because I trusted he had a wisdom in his body, he then said, okay, you can work with me. And his dad brought him back in again, and he said, he now refuses anybody else. He won't let me take him to anybody else, but he said, I want to go see Robin. In that session, he let me treat him, let me work with him, let me be with his nervous system. Boom, we shifted this, we shifted all this stuff in his cranium, and problem solved. It was because people were forcing him, he couldn't get to the own wisdom in his body, and he just was you know energetically, biologically tense and saying no,
1: so is that what you meant by being a compassionate witness? Yes, you were just there. yes, so when people become avoidants in their relationships, it's typically due to some sort of traumatic or several traumatic events in their childhood. so basically, what I'm hearing is is that it is a process, yes. So people will get there if they're given the space and time and energy to be given permission. Yes. Or give themselves permission. You said something earlier that was really kind of amazing. You said when people are wanting to get out of their pain and come home to themselves. Mm -hmm. I thought that was very profound when you said that earlier. Because I guess when we come into this world, I guess you carry all those past warnings but you're not inflicted with new trauma, mm-hmm. which triggers old trauma from before you even here. I'm sorry. I'm just so fascinated by this. Laura, you can go to the next question. No, I'm so I, just, sorry. I think
0: overall that it's powerful because I think it resonates with everybody in a way of, like you were saying, you can't force somebody to receive or to overcome. Like that's a fundamental thing we all know now. Like you can't change somebody. You can't force them to heal. But as people that are wanting to heal others, because we've been through our own healing or we're going through trauma and we want to have that kind of camaraderie in a way, it's not going to be received unless that person is in that place. Mm -hmm. I'll say
2: the number one thing I've observed that stops people in their healing is blaming others when we're constantly every single thing that goes wrong in our life, we're blaming somebody else, guaranteed to stop your healing process. Guaranteed.
1: Can you speak more on that? Can you dive into yeah. the, why?
2: So the day that I had to accept I had to do my healing, the people who created the harm were not capable of coming back and doing my healing for me or helping me my healing. That One, it's extremely rare that somebody who has perpetrated that level is going to come back and say, I'm sorry. It's it's amazing if it happens, extremely rare. And that I had to do all the damage healing, I was pissed off. Mm -hmm.
0: You're like, this is not fair.
2: It's like, okay, I get the damage and then I have to pay for therapy to do this work? (laughs) What the hell? Like, where's the (laughs) fairness and the justice in that? (laughs) And... I can heal people who are so far off that they're blaming everyone else. They are harming themselves and others in that process. I have the capacity to heal. Oh, my God, how lucky am I? And the more I take responsibility for my life, for my choices, for my actions, that is like building up my Ability to do my trauma recovery work. So, you know, just watch it. Like when you complain, watch what happens to your energy level. When you rag on somebody else, when you just talk about their faults, watch what happens to your own body. Watch what happens to your sensation, what happens in your shoulders and your agency. When we can look for the good in people, when we can give people the benefit of the doubt, be curious about like, because I'm a highly intuitive, I can see people's brains. I can see people's nervous system function. I can say, Oh, you know, they're not really capable of getting that organized. So therefore that's why they didn't show up on time or let me down or, and I can get curious of like, I don't know somebody else's struggle, but it's probably not about me in terms of like what they're, what's happening with their behavior. So being in accountability you know, kind of the opposite of narcissism. Because what happens when narcissism gets developed is somebody at, you know, some developmental point, eight, teenage years, starts blaming somebody else. And that's not to say like, yes, you were done wrong. But if you start habitually turning over everything that goes wrong is somebody else's fault, you've just gone down the narcissism road. And that's a hard road to get back out of. The moment you can start to say, I messed up, I'm sorry, I apologize. That takes self esteem to apologize. That takes dignity to say, I messed up. And to say, oops, I didn't notice. Like just recently, I was trying to do so many projects, I wasn't doing all of them well. And a person I was working with got really frustrated with me because I wasn't texting back, I wasn't calling back, I wasn't responding, I wasn't giving them the things I said I would do on time. And I called her and I said, thank you. This is a message to me that I'm trying to do too many projects at once and I can't do them all well, so I apologize. And I'm going to cut a couple things out. I'm going to turn a couple things over so that I can actually do what I said I would do. And
1: Personal accountability. Yes,
2: that is a gift you give yourself so that you can move forward in your life in a good way. And, of course, it's a gift to everybody around you rather than, like, blaming them.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think this is something that we're starting to sense a theme with a lot of people that we talk to that this is a very much a necessary part of healing yourself and also taking – Like you think, okay, well, this person did me wrong, like you you mentioned earlier. So you're – it's easier. It's so much easier. Just blame them and stuff it down and not deal with it. But ultimately, you're releasing it from you. You're releasing basically any hindrance to your own healing and you're not like focusing. Because when you focus and you complain and you you put emphasis on something, you're giving that thing power. So I think it's just kind of full circle – for Todd and I about a reminder that forgiveness is, is kind of like boundaries. It's for you and it's mm-hmm. not for them. Yeah. And honestly, we could sit here and talk to you for the, till the end of time, because it's <laughs> Literally, like, so, I am like. there's topics we talked about before that I was like, uh, we just don't have time to get to. So we're going to have to bring you back.
1: We're going to have to. Oh, my gosh.
0: But I definitely think that this is all invaluable information for everybody out there and that you're doing incredible things. And I know that you are looking forward to a book coming out that you wrote. Yes. And I just want to give you a chance to kind of tell us a little bit about that and, and when we can expect it. And then, you know, I, I and might... And can
1: we pre-order now?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs>
2: yes. Yeah, so, I worked in my memoir, you know, about what I shared with the being abducted and having the two death experiences. And really, it's a hymn of praise for the people who saved my life. And really, it's looking at their humanity, their generosity. Because honestly, you know, at any point, I could have died multiple times, and I would just be an unknown statistic in that war. And so I have their generosity, their humanity, their ability to see me and say, you're worthwhile, to thank for being here. So everything I do is paying forward what they did for me. And so I worked on that book for 14 years, and it was a labor of love, and it really started as very compressed trauma. And so that's why it took so long, was just combing through it and bringing everything out. And I have my former husband to thank for, he really interviewed me for years and years to bring that story forward in a way that nobody else could have done besides somebody who knew like oh if I ask her this question she's going to start sobbing and I'm going to be there with her so I'm really grateful for that and I've had many people I had about 45 beta readers eight professional editors and so many people have helped me along the process so it's really a community event that came together that's now a manuscript so yes working on getting a literary agent publisher so that process usually does take about a year so I'm looking forward to being able to say, it's done, and you can get it on
0: Amazon. (laughs) Well, we'll definitely be following up because we want to keep everybody informed about that as well as ourselves of when that will be coming out, and it's called Loving Bravely when that does come out, and and we're definitely very much looking forward to it. And we just honestly – Can't thank you enough for your time and insight and just for everything you're doing for people out there. I mean, your story in and of itself is one of just enormous triumph, victory that you're here today, but then to also be giving back to other people is just beautiful. So, you know, we can't thank you enough Mm -hmm. and we would love to have you back at some point and we're going to put all of the
1: Literally anytime. Yeah. Literally anytime. (laughs) Like. Anytime.
0: Yes. And we'll put all the links to everything you do. I mean, you've got so many, like you said, you're doing a lot. I'm glad to hear you're taking some things off of your plate because of personal responsibility, accountability, that everything you are doing is amazing. So we can't thank you enough. And we'll just hope that you have the most amazing rest of your evening.
1: Robin, where are you based? I'm in
2: Mount Shasta.
0: California. Where
1: is that? Uh, Oh, in California. Yeah. So
2: north of uh, Redding. About four hours north of Sacramento.
1: Okay. Okay, great. Mm-hmm.
2: Yep. By the big giant mountain, Mount Shasta.
0: Gotcha. Todd's gotcha. on his way. So he'll see you. Yeah. And he's got to get back from County. the boat, but he'll be, <laughs> he lives in California yeah. and too. So, you
1: I'm know, in we'll, Hawaii right now. We
0: might need to make a work trip out to see you 100%. and do an in
1: person something. Yeah. So. Well, thank you so much.
0: Yes. Thank you so much. And we hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. And I mean, just wow. That's all I can really say at this
1: point. Well, it
2: is my honor. And like I say, everything is about paying forward the ways that my life was saved and cared for. So I love doing this.
1: Well, thank you.
0: All right. Well, have a great day. Have a great day. We'll see you later. I think, whoa, whoa, is the perfect term for that.
1: I told her when we were off air that I was kind of <laughs> not really into this whole singing experience and getting healed and stuff. But, oh, my God, she's the real deal, isn't she? She's, yeah. She is just the real deal. And her story, my God. Oh, my gosh. To, just
0: like, just for a second, just to talk about the story itself is like, I still, I'm sitting there just going like, I understand you had like three near death experiences, but like seriously, how are you not dead? Like that, so much. She experienced so much. And the fact that she's now like helping others
1: and thriving. Yeah. And so intuitive and so sweet and heartfelt. And, but I guess it's from, you know, that village, the, those people in the village who really like, you know, showed her that kindness and love is the way, but I mean, and to have empathy for your abductor to get to the point where forgiveness is the biggest thing that she said in that whole thing was that you cannot rush forgiveness.
0: Yes. Agreed. I mean, I think that that was, I think all of her perspectives on healing and and all of that are amazing, but the rushing part I think is really important for people to understand because you don't let anybody bully you into thinking you should be at this point in your healing at any point because it's, you got to go through all the motions.
1: 100%. You can't rush it. And, Most of the things she said, I was just like, my jaw was on the floor.
0: Yeah. If we had a video element to this, I think everybody, not only would have been extremely embarrassing because we were both, you know, weeping at different times and I'm going to have to see how much of our medicine song, Todd and I both got our medicine songs and we'll see how that gets edited into this because I feel like it was a very emotional experience. And yeah,
1: it was, you and I were both just sobbing messes. Yeah, It was crazy how that. I could heal over Zoom.
0: Yes. Like, yes.
1: That was the craziest part. Yeah. And
0: then the fact that she ended up kind of getting something from us, like reading us and then telling us that, you know, what she was getting from our end. And it was Whew. so eerily spot on. It's one of those things. It's like, like Ashley, it's like you kind of in a.
1: Ashley Torrent. Yes.
0: Yeah. Ashley Torrent. Sorry. She, she's my best friend now. So I just talk about her first name. But um, no, she, you know, both of them, it, it's kind of one of those things where like, eh, is this real? But whoa, whoa. then when yeah. you're in it, it's like, like this is it. It's not just like, oh, going to like a psychic where you're like, oh, that was right. Or, oh, that was, it's almost like the feeling that you get from it is real.
1: Yeah, it's healing. And Robin just sort of the way that she gets to her message. And I cannot wait for her book to come out.
0: Yeah, I know. Me too.
1: I mean, I, I can't wait for her to finish that. She's What's a, it called again? It's
0: called Loving Bravely. And she sent us kind of like it's a little bit of her like little pitch deck, or it's a summary, if you will. And it's got some little excerpts. And it just, we talked about this off air, but like, and I'm even afraid to say it if somebody hears this, but it's like a major motion picture kind of story oh my god so
1: are you kidding me like the fact that she was shot left her body like taken at 8 years old then returned and, in, and, in a, and then returned to an abusive household the fact that she has not gone in the opposite direction but she said that because she went back to source that her source you know whatever you want to call it god the universe whatever it's the source that is what Gives her perspective is that she knows she's she's not afraid. And so she's going to try and get as close in this life to that kind of energy. I just was I was fascinated and I'm yeah, her life does need to be a major motion picture for sure. And
0: it's almost like I would love to have her back just for the fact that we when I spoke to her beforehand, you know, we talked about like we just kind of went off on all these different topics about things like attachment theory and COVID and the impacts of COVID and all that was so fascinating. But we weren't even just to get her story out there and to learn about her therapy was really all we could fit into this one. Exactly. Podcast. So,
1: and I, I almost wanted to do a part one and part two, because the story is just it was it just in itself, just getting back to the United States from Africa was like uh, that in itself. Is just you know being abducted and then being shot at and then you know get this people singing to you in a village and, and the like sleeping in a tree and the orphanage yeah Africa. the whole it was just absolutely that's riveting and then you go to the other part of her healing journey and how she helps people and and how she gets into the psyche and and heals you from. And, and, oh, the other thing that I want to say is that when she talks about healing trauma, that you can't go straight into the heart of healing trauma. You have to go to the edge of it. That was kind of mind-blowing for me because typically you think, oh, the only way to get through pain is to go straight through it. Yeah. And it's like, yes, but you can't. She's like, I'm going to stop you. Yeah. Because if you go straight into it, you're going to be too overwhelmed and you're going to retract.
0: Yeah, it's going to have the opposite effect almost. Like then you don't want to touch it. You don't want to go back to it because it's too overwhelming.
1: Exactly. But. People with unhealed trauma, especially childhood mm-hmm. unhealed trauma, really should take an extra listen to this podcast and Ashley Torrance and Lair Torrance podcasts yeah. because. The childhood trauma manifests itself in so many different ways in your adult life and in your adult relationships. And uh, even Robin stating that she had been with an narcissist at one point in her life because of her childhood trauma.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Just because, and she's you know she's the <laughs> on her medical field and the sweetest person in the world. Yeah,
0: she's the sweetest, and she knows so much, and she's like the probably the most vigilant, intuitive person in whatever way you even want to take that word. I mean, in the broader scheme of things, intuitive is really like just being aware of like what's going on around you and seeing little things that most people don't see and feeling like energy that most people don't feel or notice. And she had all that going for her and she still still get fooled yeah still get fooled still get dragged into it there's because just, of childhood trauma yeah because of and, hers and, as well as other people's cuz other people's shows up that way and they can go one go many different ways with it
1: right you can take your childhood trauma cuz you know we've talked about this i've had some severe childhood trauma and the way you get through it is therapy is great you guys mm-hmm. betterhelp.com BetterHelp. is saving my help.
0: getting everybody on it <laughs>
1: Yeah, betterhelp.com is pretty phenomenal. We both have therapists through that. And we've gotten a couple other people on board with that. But yeah, when you have... Uh, deep wounded childhood experiences. I think the you know, now that she's told me having that piece of information has really informed my own personal therapy because I go to the edge of my trauma now and my trauma work with my therapist. And for those of you listening out here, I am trying to be more vulnerable on this podcast. And I know Laura is too because that's we the feedback we've gotten is that y'all want to hear that. Why did we start this podcast in the beginning? And it really sort of formed out of the trauma, the, the collective trauma of COVID. Yeah, And then Laura Laura and I started talking about, you know, past relationships and past experiences in our lives. And then we just sort of agreed that we were both on a therapy journey and we should just talk about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's like, I think a big part of especially with like people like Robin, that's what she wants to be doing. That's like what all these therapists have been screaming from the rooftops for this whole time. Like, let's talk about it. So, you know, there's a reason why there's like the talk therapy is a thing. So Exactly. I just exactly. hope that this in as always, but especially with Robin, that people take away something that is healing for them or something that points them in a healing direction. Because exactly. if, there was a lot of lessons learned t- during that interview. We gotta have her back. Yeah. Yeah. And we we wanna give everybody a medicine song. So <laughs> go check out <laughs> I'll her try website. It. I'll, I'll try. <laughs> and i know that she she's got groups she followed up with me about joining a group but i was still traveling so i'm going to have to go and like look into that as well but at one point she was you know telling me about some of my hormone imbalance things and she's like you know what let's just let's i and you need to to go into this a little further. I don't have enough time deeper. to tell you everything you need to know. So I think in general, yeah, she's a rock star.
1: She's an inspiration and a what's another word for inspiration? I, I mean, mean, she just
0: that's you all can I can over.
1: Really- if you listen to this podcast, you know, you know what? Not getting that Starbucks latte today is not yes, it's, yes, it's not the biggest deal, you know. And
0: perspective is a big thing to take from that. I think is that to keep perspective, boom,
1: yeah, that part. Yeah. Mic drop, Laura. Mic Mic drop drop moment perspective. Yeah. yeah.
0: Don't want to drop this mic because I need it. But yes, the whole thing (laughs) is full of mic drops and eye opening. So I'm really glad that we did it in general. So it
1: it was great to talk to you today um, and great to have Robin on the program.
0: Yes, as always. It's always lovely to see you. Even if you are infected with COVID, I'm glad you are out I'm of glad mind. you
1: can't get it via Zoom. I
0: know that was you can get a medicine song through this through Zoom. This is the Zoom's tagline. Don't worry, you can get a medicine song, but you can't get COVID. <laughs> <laughs> they should incorporate that somehow. All right. Well, as always, well, wonderful miss to see you. you. I hope you feel I'll better. You too.
1: Okay, and I'll see you soon. Yep. Talk to you later.